Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Did Jesus really take on God's wrath on the cross? Well, today we continue our series, The Mysteries of the Cross. Let's listen to Dr. Neufeld as he addresses the subject of satisfying the wrath of God from Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Not long ago, I and my colleagues at Back to the Bible were in India. Wonderful young Indian Christian and a pastor had agreed to ferry us around to our appointments. I sat in the front with the opportunity to talk with this young pastor. We'd hardly gotten to know each other when he asked his first question. He had recently had a conversation with a friend who told him that Jesus did not suffer the wrath of his father on the cross. And then he said, would you tell me what you think? The question of what happened on the cross is of no small interest to Christians. Recently, it has become quite popular to say that if the father poured out wrath on his son on the cross, that would be a form of child abuse. And in recent years, the question of the place of the father's wrath is being challenged from a number of sectors, even from those who claim to be Christian. In their book, The Lost Message of Jesus, authors Steve Chalk and Ellen Mann say the following. The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events, they say, morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery, says Chalk, of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. Well, that's the end of the quote. You can see what's being challenged. First, the authors challenge the idea of a substitution, one life given for another. And second, the authors strongly claim that the concept of love, and the concept of wrath are inconsistent. Now, there are a number of ways to respond, and first we might ask, does the Bible teach that God has wrath and that he exercises his anger against not only sin, but against those who sin? Well, yes, the Bible indeed makes that claim, and it's not as if it's an obscure claim found somewhere in a corner of the Bible. Indeed, in almost every single one of the 66 books that make up our Bible, there are examples of God's wrath. Let's start from the beginning. In Genesis 6, God says he is determined to make an end of all flesh, and then he sends a flood to kill every single human being, with the exception of Noah and his family. In Exodus, the Bible's second book, God sends a series of ten plagues on Egypt, with a final one resulting in the killing of all of their firstborn. Next, in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, two of Aaron's sons, offer unauthorized incense on an altar, and according to verse 2, fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. Indeed, God's anger is portrayed as so severe that Aaron, the father of the two young men, was forbidden from letting his hair down and tearing his clothing, which were traditional signs of mourning. God will not allow Aaron to even mourn the objects of his wrath. Next, in the book of Numbers, it's filled with examples of the wrath of God. Number 16, a man named Korah and his followers are consumed by God as the earth opens up and swallows them. 
God is demonstrating his displeasure with rebellion. And in chapter 25, Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, kills a man and a woman for openly sinning against God. And God responds by saying that Phineas' act turned back his wrath. For if Phineas had not acted the way he did, God would have consumed all of the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy, rebelling against God is defined as the way of death. In Joshua, the entire book is given to fighting against God's enemies. I could go on and on, one book after another, and in each one, a further example of the wrath of God. Indeed, it might surprise the listener to know that even in the book of Song of Solomon, a song of pure sexual love, there is a reference to the wrath of God. And lest we think this matter ends in the Old Testament, think again. As I have frequently said on this broadcast, no one spoke about hell more than Jesus. He spoke of it as a place reserved for the enemies of God. He spoke of it as in terms of its endless duration and its endless suffering. This is found in all four gospel accounts. And then the book of Acts presents Ananias and Sapphira being killed by God for lying to the church. The book of Romans begins by stating that the wrath of God is right now being revealed in this earth. And again, we could go on and on. Indeed, as far as I know, only 2nd and 3rd John in the New Testament contain no examples of the anger or judgment of God. Of course, the last book in our Bible, the book of Revelation, presenting the picture of in Revelation 19, verse 15, of the return of Jesus, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and then it goes on to say, He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now, it would take an entire broadcast to show how it is that the wrath of God and the love of God are not inconsistent at all. After all, do we really think that on a human scale, a human being who would never exercise anger is virtuous? What if we met someone who lived next to the Buchenwald concentration camp and remained serene and lacking in anger? Would we think it loving not to show anger in the face of evil? Now, let me not chase that thought down. I want here only to make the point that if you argue that it is inconsistent, that a loving God should be filled with wrath, you're actually rejecting the God who is portrayed in just that way in almost every single book of the whole Bible. But now let's ask the next question. What actually happened at the cross of Jesus? Is the cross the location of the greatest expression of the wrath of God in all history? Is this holy place the outpouring of the fury of an incensed and angry God? Did Jesus really suffer a horror much greater than all the suffering of sinners in hell? Let's look at the evidence. I'm going to break this down into four sections. In the first section, I, I want to ask the question of how often Jesus suffered. Then in the second section, we'll consider why Jesus suffered. And then in the third section, we will consider the scriptural evidence for Christ experiencing the anger of God on the cross. And then finally, we'll consider what all that means for us who believe. So let's start at the beginning. Did the sufferings of Jesus simply begin on the cross, or was suffering a part of his entire earthly existence? I know that it's become quite common for people to speak about the laughter of Jesus, and I know of one book that was dedicated to the humor of Jesus. He's often presented as a man of great joy, a man that would be fun to be around. Now, I have no doubt that Jesus knew joy and laughter, but the overwhelming biblical account of Jesus is the one presented to us in the prophecy found in Isaiah 53, verse 3. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Sorrow and grief were so prevalent in the life of Jesus that it is these elements, says Isaiah, that become the overriding expressions of the life that he experienced. Let's see if we can follow that line of thought. Imagine the sufferings and temptations we face. None of us will ever know his suffering in this regard, because as you and I know, that when we give in to a temptation, it's as if a boil has been lanced. The pressure is off. Yes, we feel guilt afterwards, but the weight of the temptation is gone. Because Jesus never gave in to temptation, even in the smallest matter, the suffering of bearing up under the crushing load of satanic temptation was real and felt. Or consider Hebrews 5 verse 8 that tells us that although he was a son, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. Jesus knew all of his life that it, what it was to bring his human will always in submission to the will of his Father. We might consider the psychological suffering he endured as people accused him of being in league with tax collectors, prostitutes, and other degenerates. We wonder about his brothers who turned against him and did not believe. His hometown, at one point in time, tried to murder him. Indeed, he was a man of sorrows whose most familiar human emotion was grief. The fact that he exhibited joy in the midst of all of this is overwhelming. Now, let's consider why it is that Jesus suffered. Here we need to consider Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. There are those who point out that the term here for the will of the Lord carries with it a sense not of the reluctant will of God, but of the determined will of God. See, no matter how we try to dissect this and even find it distasteful, God the Father determined in his heart that in accordance with his unchanging purpose that he would will that his son should suffer. And so who is it that caused the son to live a life of sorrow? And who is it that caused the Son to be crushed on the excruciating cross? The overwhelming biblical response is this, God the Father caused this to be. The idea of Jesus being crushed is overwhelming, but it was as God had determined it to be, and Dr. Neufeld will help us understand more fully why when he continues. Back to the Bible Canada, Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, and the Back to the Bible ministry team has just returned from our second Israel experience, and what a blessing. Each year we've left knowing that some were left behind because of a designed limited capacity and our desire to ensure a uniqueness of intimacy with each event. Well, the uniqueness of intimacy is a non-negotiable. But we also want to make sure as many as possible have opportunity to participate in Back to the Bible Canada's Israel Experience. So even though we've just returned, we're announcing the Israel Experience 2019 today. Join us April 28th through May 6th, 2019, and consider including the Jordan Extension from May 6th through May 11th, 2019. Last year, we were booked to capacity in only the first few months, so don't be disappointed. Call today for all the 2019 Israel Experience information you'll need at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Mm-hmm. 
we have considered two important aspects of the death of Christ. His sufferings did not begin on the cross, rather they culminated on the cross. And secondly, the sufferings of Jesus were in accordance to the decree or the set and determined will of God. God the Father caused the Son to suffer. Now we come to the heart of the matter. Did Jesus really suffer the wrath of God on the cross? As we have already noted, some find the idea of the sufferings of the Son bearing up under the righteous anger of the Father to be distasteful, inconsistent with the love of God, and if it were true, would be an example of cosmic child abuse. But before we answer these emotional charges, let's see what the Bible has to say. Romans 3.25, speaking of Christ's sufferings on the cross, says, "...whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood." You know, this word in the Greek is the word hilasterion. There is no modern English equivalent to this word, and so many Bibles simply insert an Old English word, propitiation. But what does the word mean? To propitiate means to placate someone's anger. Imagine an abusive, ill-tempered individual. You never know when they might suddenly go off, and so the man's wife does all she can to make the home such that her husband won't suddenly go crazy. She makes sure that food is ready on time, the kids are quiet, all the toys are always picked up, anything that will propitiate his anger. Now, the minute we hear that, we're shocked. How can this be a description of the God of the Bible? It sounds more like a description of some of the pagan gods of old who were impetuous, and you never knew what they might do next. And so you developed a whole series of superstitions and incantations and so forth to try to avoid their fickle and temperamental nature. You, you try to propitiate them. Because the use of the word propitiation seems so shocking, an effort has been made to see if the word might mean something else. Some Bible translations use the word expiation instead of propitiation. Now, that word simply means to remove sins instead of to remove anger. Others suggest that the term might refer to the mercy seat in the Old Testament. So in that way, Romans 3.25 might say, God presented Jesus as the place where God and man are reconciled. But as hard as some try to get away from the meaning of the word propitiation, the context of the book of Romans simply will not allow that kind of a translation. In Romans 1.8, in Romans 2.5, in Romans 3.5, God is characterized as a God of wrath. The wrath of God is being revealed, says Romans 8. Because of our sinfulness, each one of us is storing up even more wrath of God, says Romans 2.5. So that the longer we live, the more opportunity we have to increase the settled anger of God against us. It's horrifying. And Romans goes further. God is absolutely righteous to inflict wrath on human beings, says Romans 3, verse 5. And that's why Romans 3, 25 is so important. Where does all that wrath or all that anger go? According to the Apostle Paul, all that anger was poured out on Jesus, whom God set forward as a propitiation. Or when God poured out his anger onto his son, his anger was placated or appeased or pacified or satisfied. Once the cross happened, God no longer had need to express his anger, for it has been propitiated in the cross. Well, now to the next question of, of whether this makes God sound like the impetuous, rash, impulsive, and hot-headed pagan gods of the ancient world. Let me put the matter emphatically. God is not, in any sense, 
like that even in the slightest. The God of the Bible, this God who truly exists, he is not subject to bad moods. God's holy wrath is a settled wrath that rests for all times on evil. God's anger is aroused by only one thing, and that is evil. And so God's anger is principled. It's predictable and a controlled anger. It's principled because it's motivated by righteousness. It's predictable because it's always the same. Sin is always met by God's anger, and it's controlled. It's directed at sin and the sinner, and not like a nuclear bomb that wipes out everything in its path. Now, according to Romans, the reason why God has not demonstrated his wrath in times past is because the cross of Jesus was already a certain thing. God knew that his righteous anger would pour out onto his son in the future in the time he designated. Now, one more important point. It's not just here in Romans 3.25 where the word propitiation is used of the cross. The same thought is also expressed in Hebrews 2.17, in 1 John 2 verse 2, and in 1 John 4 verse 10. So let's see if we can express the matter in the way that it is clearly expressed in our Bible. The altogether righteous God whose holy righteousness cannot tolerate sin set forth his Son as a bloody, horrifying sacrifice on whom he poured out the fury of his wrath for human sin. And there on the cross, Jesus became the object of the Father's displeasure with sin, the sin for which God had patiently stored up his anger from the fall. And it was this stored up anger that was poured out or unleashed onto Jesus on his cross. I wonder if there are any words that can be marshaled into service that might describe what Jesus experienced on the cross. The physical horrors of crucifixion, the, the mocking of his enemies, and the abandonment of his disciples pales in comparison to what he suffered under the hand of his Father. Matthew, in Matthew 27, verse 46, records Jesus as crying out to his Father, Why have you forsaken me? See, it's important that we understand what he meant. It does not mean that he was surprised to be forsaken of God. After all, when he was in the garden, he was quite aware that he was being offered a cup. And everywhere in the prophets, that cup is the cup of wrath. Even Job, in Job 21 verse 20, speaks of the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. Jesus was more than aware of what awaited him on the cross. And it was this awareness that caused him to sweat drops of blood in the garden. The physical strain of anticipating such an outpouring of righteous anger was so great that his blood vessels in his forehead were literally bursting under such a strain. And when Jesus prays, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalm 22 verses 1 to 2. In that psalm, the psalmist cries out that the help he requires from God has taken longer than he has anticipated. And that's exactly what Jesus prays. He, in his human nature, did not know how long the anger of God would be poured out. And then as he hung on the cross, hour after hour of wrath fell on him. In essence, he was praying, why have you forsaken me for so long? When will it end? Is there yet more of the weight of God's wrath against sin that I must yet bear? Why must this suffering go on for so long? 
And that's why the cry that John records in John 19.30 is so significant. It is finished. He has fully drunk the cup of the Father's wrath. The anger of God is satisfied and abated. The payment for the sins of those who would look to Christ is paid in full. Nothing more is required. It is finished means that the matter of God's righteous anger against our sins is now fully satisfied. And so I have left the matter of what this means to the very last. At the very least, the sufferings of Jesus makes me want to love Christ in a way that I did not think possible. You know, I, for my part, want to hear more about the sufferings of Christ. Indeed, I would want to glory in his sufferings. For what wondrous love is this, O my soul? O my soul, tell me everything I might learn of the cross, for in this is a love that cannot be expressed in any other way than to stand at the foot of the cross and to weep tears of inexpressible thankfulness and joy. You know, added to this is a settled assurance for all who hope in Christ that God is not angry with us at all. I might look at my own sins and be overwhelmed at what my sins deserve. But for every one look at myself and my sins, I would take ten looks at the cross of Christ and find that my soul is satisfied in him. And in this, all lovers of the cross find themselves welcomed in the presence of an altogether holy God. And with this, I understand the cross is the place where wrath and mercy meet. God so loved the world that he gave his only son as a wrath-bearing bloody sacrifice that everyone who looks to him might live. I know that I will never be asked to suffer for my sins, for one has suffered in my place. John, I know you're passionate about this message. We've talked about that. And I know you believe this is a message that needs to be heard more and more. Why? You know, one of the things that I find is that whenever we don't teach a Bible truth, the next generation believes it but has no reason for it, and the next generation after that finds it openly challenged and actually accepts the challenge. I think we are in danger in our day not having taught this sufficiently, that there are individuals who are confronting us to no longer put our confidence in Christ himself and what his cross means. And so we have no hope of escaping the wrath of God. As I said to my Indian friend when we were talking, if Christ didn't bear the wrath of God on my behalf, then I guess I still bear it. It's that important. Thanks, John, for sharing that word with us. And tomorrow, join us as John talks about Christ's victory over Satan. Right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. King Josiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the pastor Timothy, the queen of England, Jane Grey, the preacher Charles Spurgeon, and many more. What do they have in common? They all devoted themselves to God at a young age. You know, we can sometimes think that adolescence isn't a time for serious, strong, and committed devotion to God, but rather school, sports, career, and of course, having fun. But are we missing something when we just adopt this mindset? You see. God's Word addresses all hearts, no matter the age. 
When the truths of the Bible are given clearly and powerfully, people will listen and engage, even young adults. At Endowed, we engage young adults with the gospel, but our parent ministry, Back to the Bible Canada, more specifically teaches verse-by-verse -verse exposition of scripture with Dr. John Newfeld, and young adults are listening and engaging. To listen, just head to backtothebible.ca.